G'day and welcome back to the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Thank you for joining us again. My guest today is Dr. Shane Doyle. Shane grew up on a dairy farm near Bow Desert in Queensland and at 18 he embarked on a policing career which spanned over three decades. In the Queensland Police Service he rose to the senior leadership position of inspector. Shane's police postings included stints as a criminal investigator and he performed various roles in both country and city locations. As an operational commander Shane led up to 250 police and managed complex crime operations and major events. He is also experienced in leading major projects and large training portfolios, including managing the educational requirements of over a thousand personnel with budgets in the millions. After taking early retirement from policing, Shane plucked up the courage to plunge headfirst into the world of academia by completing a PhD in police leadership and securing a full-time lecturing position at CQ University. Shane enjoyed teaching in diverse criminal justice and project management subjects and received awards for excellence in teaching. The pandemic presented Shane another opportunity to retire early, this time from full-time university life. He now runs his consultancy business undertaking research in policing. Shane still maintains ties with academia, performing an adjunct scholar's role supervising PhD students. He is also a curriculum board member with the Leaders Institute, responsible for developing a master's in police leadership. Furthermore, Shane is closely involved with developing world education in his role as secretary of the management committee of one of the largest educational charities in Bangladesh, titled Cooperation in Development, founded by Fred Hyde AM. Shane enjoys a lifetime passion for learning. He holds a PhD from CQU, a Bachelor of Business and Master of Business through QUT and a Graduate Certificate in Applied Management through the AIPM. Today we're going to have a discussion around Shane's leadership pathway from the context of the world of work and academia. Thanks for joining us but enough from me and I'll hand over to Shane. Shane, again, thanks for joining me mate. So we are doing some... Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, mate, look, I think with these things, people don't understand that I'm forever grateful for people that give up their time to have these discussions. But on this occasion, where although we're focusing on leadership, we're looking at your leadership journey and some of what you've done in your research career to inform the conversation today, which I think offline I've, I've spoken to you about that is of extreme interest to me as a early career researcher and someone who wants to know what others have done and what they've been through. Not that we're going to cover all of that. Obviously we need to keep it uh, pegged to the leadership journey. I, I think this one will be interesting for those that ha- have a, um, a more than passing interest in leadership and how that plays out in a university career, but you didn't start at a, with a university career. So let's, uh-huh. let's go, let's go to question one. <laughs> uh, this one's in three parts. So what led you to a career in policing to start with? Yeah, it's a, it's a good place to start. And thanks, Eric, for the introduction. Um, I, I joined the police, Queensland Police Service, more by accident than design. It was a situation where I was born and bred on a, on a dairy farm about 30 kilometres southeast of a small township called Badesert. And uh, for the first 18 years of my life, I was on this dairy farm and I knew from the outset that I wasn't destined to be a farmer. Uh, So my mother, who was very wise and one of my early mentors in my life, said to me, Shane, you've got to decide what you want to do. Obviously, this is not it. And I said, no, it's not it. So we sat down, we went brainstormed through a few ideas and she threw in policing. And I said, well, policing, are you serious? You've got to get your hair cut really short. (laughs) It's funny, things you think of when you're 18, isn't it? And, and uh, she said, look, just throw in for it. So just to humour her, I suppose, to keep her happy, I threw in for it. And lo and behold, uh, I got accepted at the academy. So that sort of started my career. I wanted to be independent right from the start. So I never wanted to be a uni student, even though I was accepted at, at QUT for the School of Business. So I could, have, I could have gone down that track and done the degree straight away, but I'm pretty happy I didn't do that. So, so then I went on and... Um, yeah, that, the, the rest is probably history. Over three decades in policing and, um, yeah, it was interesting and varied career. Uh, I enjoyed most of it. <laughs> there were some challenges along the way. And then I enjoyed the academy training, which was illuminating. And um, almost at one stage, I almost uh, left the police at 23 
And uh, luckily, uh, one of my mentors, uh, a wise old sergeant at the, at, at, the, um, at the country station I was, I was posted at the time, a place called Roma, he said, Shane, he said, do you really want to go back and become a student and learn how to be a teacher? Just, just go to the academy and become a, a lecturer at, at the police academy. And I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, they're desperate. <laughs> so I ended up applying for it and lo and behold, that started my education career in the police. So I suppose a bit of a, a teacher by, by a de facto teacher in that respect. Yeah. But, yeah, it was a good career and I enjoyed it. So Yeah, I, I was going to ask a question. What... What was the the light bulb moment that stopped you going to uni early and going straight <laughs> straight to the police? Now I didn't I, want to be poor. Didn't uh, want to be poor student, okay. Eric. <laughs> right. Okay. And that and that's and that's fine. Um, yeah. I, I don't think anyone can make the claim that you become uh, rich while be while being a full time student. I can uh, no. I can attest to that. Not at all. And, and I, I guess um one thing that's curious to me, and I'm, I, I have been and maintain my support for the agriculture and fishery sectors. And I get a mix of views as the kids of of farmers that I speak to and fishermen about whether or not they want them to stay on the family farm or to to stay commercial fishing. Did that weigh on you making that decision to move away from farming? It did. That My father secretly harboured this desire that as his eldest son, I was bestowed this right, and, and I, I didn't get any of that when I was 18. But um, being the eldest son, I did have a responsibility, I suppose, to take the farm over, and I went against that, which was which was difficult in some respects because I knew I let him down, even though he didn't actually say it. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, they want the farm to carry on. They, they want the next generation to, to pick up but, and not to lose what they built. So, yeah, it was. It did weigh heavily on me. But I knew ultimately, my gut told me I wasn't, I wasn't cut out for, for the land. So it was just, just unfortunate, I suppose. Yeah, and that, that tends to happen. One guest um, whose podcast I haven't released yet was the complete opposite. He knew, I guess, at birth that he was going to be on the farm and that's all he wanted to do. And, and I think uh, with, with human beings, what, being what we are, Following your gut that way, I need to tell you what you don't want is a good indicator of what not to do. Uh, and sometimes yeah. listening to that that little voice is important. So, so back to the questions, if I could, and um, I'm interested in the next element, an overview of your leadership journey. What what did that look like? It, it was it was interesting and varied, particularly in policing. It uh, took uh, different forms, but I started my leadership journey at the police academy actually as a police cadet because I knew I had an inkling, uh, a tinkering or inkering for to be a leader or just to to have that responsibility. So I, I volunteered or at least I advocated to be the squad leader of my squad. And I think it was, you know, the last person standing and I just happened to get the, the baton. So I thoroughly enjoyed that over a period of 18 months. I knew there was, there was the, I experienced the influence, um, the power, but I suppose in a nice way, being through influencing people. But I, I, when I got into policing at, at 19 years of age and very, very young, obviously, and quite naive at being a country boy, my first, my first foray into, say, domestic violence was that we went to this, this domestic violence incident. The first one for me, and I was really quite nervous and apprehensive about it, and I had about two months' service, so it was very, very, very early on. And my partner, the officer who was with me, he I was 19 and he was 39, and, and he'd, he'd had, he's got two or three, he had two or three kids, whatever, and the domestic dispute that we were going to was between a husband and wife, and they were arguing over their wayward 16-year-old daughter who was drinking and 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 you know, having sex and all these terrible things. So they were arguing over that. When I arrived, they looked at me, and then they looked at a much older guy, and they, they said, well, who are we speaking to? And the, the, <laughs> the 13-year-old, 9-year-old partner said to me, this guy here. And they said, are you serious? <laughs> and I tried to talk to them because I was thrown in the deep end. I wasn't expecting the job. Thrown in the deep end, and I struggled, and I'm trying to get some words out. And my they, they, father eventually said, how old are you? I said, oh, I'm 19. And he said, we've got a son, 19, and a daughter, 16. So you're trying to tell me about how to bring up my 16-year-old daughter. You're kidding, aren't you? I want to talk to this guy. And he pointed to the 39-year-old guy. So I just simply had to 
got walked back and accept defeat. It was really embarrassing. And I, and also it was a real learning experience for me because sometimes you're thrown into those leadership positions and you're so underprepared, ill-equipped. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. And I think what I learned from that is that you've got to, you've got at least, if you can have some heads up, have some preparation and be prepared because, but I learned a valuable lesson from it. And, and I didn't, I didn't really, uh, I learned the lesson, but the experience sort of burned into my memory that you've got to be, you've got to be ready for these challenges. Yeah, I think you're underselling it, mate. Burned in your memory is probably not the best way to describe it because it's like it, it's right, it's right there on the surface. I was just going to say that's a a really um, nicely packaged up example of ages and working the other way. And sure. um, I think some people have been through that. I oh, you made me remember something as you were describing that when I first started in my former role, and is going back now. Um, 12 odd years, but I was still in sort of my mid thirties at the time I went out and met some people in my industry uh, up North Queensland. And I, I've been told by more than a few people that I have a baby looking face. So I don't look my age. Um, so, you know, talking to you now, I'm pushing 50 and people don't, <laughs> you don't look like that I am, but I am. And I went up there and I got sunny more than one time. And I kept thinking in my head, Sonny, I got two kids. I've been married for 20 years. I'm no one's, I'm no one's little kid brother, mate. What the hell? And <laughs> I, th- I think you, you cop that, um, that kind of uh, ignorance because it just exists. But I guess in that circumstance, when you've got parents that worried about their kids, they're the last thing they want to encounter is what they're worried about, looking at them, giving them advice, whereas they didn't understand. And I'm sure they, to this day, probably feel bad about the encounters that you were there to try to de-escalate a situation that could get quite seriously (laughs) messy. And they're not thinking straight, but you are. And um, I I think that world is, is an extremely one, interesting one, but two, you're being asked at a very young age to go into situations that even adults would have some adults would have a difficulty engaging in. So I, yeah. I, I, and again, you can see that it's sort of lives at the top of your memory when you're bringing that nice. one up, that it, nice. it, it was a learning thing for you. Um, so you, you, you had a, a career in the police force mm-hmm. and then you transitioned into a career into research so before i ask you the next question how did you transition away from policing to research so that i can make the next couple of questions kind of make some sense yeah can i just pick up on a previous point about that issue with domestic violence sure so what the other thing i forgot to mention was the learning experience was that you can't replace and my research subsequently backed all this up you can't replace lived experience so if so, let's rewind that whole scenario. And if my senior partner had said to me, "Have you been to domestic violence before?" and I said, "No," he said, "Look, I've been to heaps. You follow me. You watch me. Take notes, and then at the end we'll do debrief. And you just just watch. You observe, and then we'll do it that way." So he had all this lived experience, and I didn't. And I was just thrown in the deep end. So lived, you can't replace that. So that's just I was just a quick little little uh, highlight from my research. Yeah. So that it was so. That's that's the main learning I came out of that, and supported by the research. Yeah, I, I, and I understand that, and I, I, I guess in the moment you're not thinking about ask like it's it, you're in the moment, and so no, we're, we're talking no. here hindsight, yeah. and that's always yeah. a beautiful thing because you can yeah. look back and go, well, it could have gone multiple ways, and this is what <laughs> I learned after the fact. But damn, it'd be good to have yeah. that that thinking before you got in, and I yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. So again, you, sorry, yeah. you you transition. No, that's okay. You transitioned from policing to research with yes, um, a policing focus. Why the switch? Well. I, uh, to be fair, I'd always been a bit of a, a researcher in, in during my time in policing. So I'd done all this part time. So I'd done about um, the undergraduate in business. I went on and did that in my twenties. Then I, I had a hankering for more study. I don't know. I think I'm you know gotten for punishment, obviously. So I went went into a, a master's program and I just didn't do a master's by coursework. I did it by research. So within the police, I was researching. Um, the roles and competencies of senior managers, of middle managers. And um, so I got a bit of a taste for the research then. And then 
I'd always hankered for this PhD, but I wanted to remain married, <laughs> happily married to my wife. And, and she said, oh, no, just don't do that. It's just too much work. And, and she was right to a point. But ultimately, I got to my early 50s. And then, lo and behold, they were offering voluntary redundancies in the Queensland Police Service. Do you believe that, Eric, for the first time in the history of the Queensland Police Service, they were offering voluntary redundancies to senior police? Because I was, I was an inspector at that stage, top 2 or 3%. In the, in the rank structure. So I thought, wonderful, I can do get paid out um, and then I can do this PhD re research in leadership, which, which again was always an area I'd like. So that was the segue. The opportunity looked like it came knocking and I, I'm a big believer that when you, you know a career is finished, you're looking for the next yes. career and it's almost like the study was prepping you for the next step in your career um, even Correct. though you might not have been planning it that way yeah that that makes a lot of sense to me um, so let's uh, let me ask you this briefly describe what your research was focused on so I've alluded to it but in my 50s obviously um, a mature age student I always harbor this passion for leaders leadership and and also more specifically how leaders learn the art of leadership how do they become leaders? And I had this view that I just, if I go to the right course, if I go to the right program, if I listen to the right uh, uh, workshop or something like that, I, I would then be equipped with these skills. So what I learned from along the way was that it, that's not the way you become a leader. And it was a really edifying experience for me. So I use what they call a mixed methods approach, which I understand you've also used in your research. And so essentially some quantitative data um, so the, the, the focus groups and the, and the interviews and some, um, sorry, so quantitative being surveys and mix that up, the surveys and, the, and then the qualitative being the, the interviews. So I did a combination of both. My central premise was, yeah, and it hadn't been done, police had never done, been done before worldwide. It was, there was general research saying, okay, about 70% of leadership is acquired in the field, so on the job experiences, the lived experiences sort of thing, uh, through challenging assignments and exercises and things that take you out of your comfort zone, you know, things that test you. Sometimes it's sink or swim and you've got to swim. And then there's 20% of that learning how to become a leader is involved in, in mentoring and coaching. So relationships, finding people in the organisation or, or elsewhere that can help you, give you advice, a guiding hand, support, that sort of thing. And the last 10%, believe it or not, is, is the actual uh, structured formal learning, which is the leadership course, the workshop, whatever, the podcast, all these things. So if you put that all together, that sort of, I thought, well, does this also operate in policing? And, and the research indicated, my research indicated that very similar percentages, that, that, that that's how the, the leaders, obviously there were other things that I came out of my research, but that was one of the, the, the big things. And that led to my role as a full-time uh, lecturer at university which was uh, a big bonus out of the PhD. It, it sounds like um, one led to the other I guess that doing the research particularly in an area that had never been done before that's always breaking new ground um, piques people's interest particularly mm. university in, in, particularly if you come from uh, the the work culture that you did. So if we wrap all of that up, and again, I'm, I'm asking this as a macro level question, but get, feel free to get into the weeds as much as you need to. What's your philosophy on leadership? It's, it's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> it's a big question. And I think my philosophy has changed over time. I think it was pretty simplistic. When I started, I my philosophy was, like, right, get out there and get things done and people will follow you. And it just, just doesn't live the experience that has, has changed and moulded my way about my ideas about leadership. Um, I think with if it, can we talk about specifically about leadership in policing? Is that okay to, to go into that area? Because obviously that's one I'm most comfortable with. Yeah, and, and that that follows the next um Selects a lot of themes and, and questions we've got here. So um, if, if you want, we can we can merge these two and, and, and you can make the link however you like. It's about um, talking about the distinct nature of policing from a leadership context. So if you want to go with yeah. that, we can go there first. Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. So the the one of one number one thing I find really frustrating about um, the the, the uh, leadership in policing is that the popular media, the social media, uh, the streaming services, the commercial TV, they, they all project this leadership in in the policing. So the experts out there are saying this is this is how you do leadership, and this. But the reality in, in policing is. The, the the experts are saying this is how you do policing in terms of uh, it's out on basically arresting criminals on the road. Um, this this is a siege. This is a situation, and so on. But that's that's not re- re- really representing what what policing is all about. So um, the culture. What I found is that the culture in policing. The culture in policing is very, very influential, as is the culture in, in general, leadership in other organisations, and, and also the context. So being a police officer in uh, our leader in policing is not the same as BHP or, or Apple or, or all those organisations. Very much is con- the, the context, and that's what, what my PhD um, research was also came out very clearly, that, that context is king. Um, so there's not one universal um, prominent leadership style that everyone can adopt. So if we go back to my leadership philosophy, that in a, in a nutshell is that this, if you try to grab onto one leadership style, leadership philosophy, then it may not work for the organisation or the context you're working in. So that, that's what I find about uh, also frustrating about the popular media is going back to that issue, but not just policing, but the popular media leadership myth is that there is some perfect leadership style out there and they'll come out with books and 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 um, podcasts and all these things saying oh this is the this this is the way to, to lead and it's it's so uh untrue because it might sell a lot of books but might necessarily that style might necessarily suit what you're, you're trying to achieve in that in the organization that that you're working um, so I, I look at it from a, like a smorgasbord. My philosophy on leadership is that you go around and you simply look at different traits and characteristics of different people that you admire as leaders or you aspire to be uh, leaders, their particular, something about their leadership, and you take what you need from those particular uh, individuals and then you make it your your style, unique style. That, I suppose that's my overriding thing about leadership. The other thing is leadership is also leading people through the journey and a lot of leadership involves influence, but also a thing called change. And every time I've been in a leadership position, it's been about trying to manage the anxieties and the expectations from the troops about what the change entails. And that's that's a, that's a challenging uh, thing for a leader to do because every bit you do about leadership is, is got a change component. And when, when you don't have people or leaders that help them through that process and nurture them and mentor them and and, and support them all the way through, then, then things can go, uh, you know, pear-shaped very quickly. There's, there's a lot to unpack there and, and you've answered the context in which you work and how that shapes leadership and you've very much clearly articulated what your philosophy of leadership is. One couple of questions that come to mind here around policing, and, and first, let me make a generalisation a little bit from a culture perspective. I've had the good fortune to speak to some serving and some ex-people uh, in the Australian military, and some from overseas, and I get the the, the I, I get the distinct impression now. This may not be one hundred percent accurate, but because of those cultures in which leadership is is molded and shaped and and hopefully uh, effective in both those contexts, the military and the policing context, they have to be to some degree flexible and your ability to be self-reflective and change your practice is needed because the dilemmas that uh, cops that are on, that are publicly facing the community um, will be different to those police Mm. Um, our police forces that are uh, in-house or back of house doing what you do as you go up the chain so you're less out in front of the public and and other younger police or less experienced policemen are out in the community. And I think you can't have a one-size-fits-all and it 
it, it all it always makes me laugh a little bit that I I came into my research thinking why can't I come up with a unified theory of leadership that covers every goddamn eventual eventuality and it's never going to happen and I understand now why that is mm. um I you, you can't take away the contextual element to what is required of leaders however where I differ with some of the research and, and this is a my own philosophy not tested by any research yet is I think there are some core leader capabilities that you can't escape from having to be sure. more effective than somebody else. Now, I'm not saying everyone doesn't have the capabilities that I've got in mind, but I think how you nurture and build those capabilities is going to sing, sing, single you out as being a more effective leader than somebody else. Now, from sure. a from a policing context, did you ever compare and contrast that sector to other sectors to find if there were some leadership learnings or any learnings you could draw on in your own research? Yeah, it's it's a good question, Eric, and, and, and thanks for asking it because that was probably leads to my what my next uh, point I was going to make is that when I joined the police, um, a wise instructor at the academy said, he said, look, you've got to be prepared. It's this, this profession, uh, I suppose, occupation, arguably profession, is not for the faint-hearted. And he sat back in his chair and he said, you'll see the worst of people and people at the worst. And I reflected on that saying many times over the uh, my career, and I thought, gee, that's just so true. When you, you come in situations where you see people under terrible stress, terrible suffering, anxiety, uh, emotional distress, uh, grief, and then and another saying that sort of crept in later in, in policing is that you deal with the mad, the bad, and the sad. And that's also very much on, on very true. So the, the reason why I think policing arguably, police leadership arguably sets itself apart from, I'd say, the vast majority of professions, because I think leadership in, in, in the military is probably a separate category altogether, which we won't get into because I'm not an expert in that area. Um, but the what I find interesting about that um, whole thing is that uh, when you're leading from the front and you've got to make uh, at some stage, life and death decisions, that's where the, your leadership's different because, because when you're, say, working in office, the most serious thing you can pick up is probably a book or a pen or something or, or your mouse and throw it at someone. But, but when you're dealing in a policing context, officers can pull up someone and have a gun pointed at them. So that's why that's the, that, that use of lethal uh, force. And I think from a frontline you know, leadership point of view, that's where the difference is. Uh, the leadership in a corporate area where you've got time, you've got resources, and you've got that ability to reflect. But when you have to make a decision straight away as a leader and the troops are looking at you saying, do we enter into, do we enter that house or not? Because we've got information that there's an armed defender, there's a hostage, or do we step back? And they're all looking at you and you've got to make the call. Now, if you make the bad call, then officers can get shot. The hostages can get killed. And you imagine that on the front page of the of the uh, uh, Courier-Mail the next morning and the commissioner of police reading that and you know, almost choking on a Wheaties. You know, that, that would be terrible to think that you made the wrong call. But most professions, most leaders don't need to make life or death decisions. Yeah, I think I think we're in a bad place as a society when you have to say to me, well, what's it going to look like when it hits the papers? Well, it's mm. going to get sensationalised, but it was a call that was made in the heat of the moment. Right. And sometimes people make um, bad decisions, but it doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean <clears throat> you shouldn't reflect on a career. And, yeah, and, and unfortunately the scrutiny that the police are under yeah, it, it makes it makes that decision making that much more scrutinised, which yeah. which I think is not the same in other industry sectors. You're right, I, I I would agree. And look, I I claim no expertise in leadership in the military. All I'm going on was just the conversations I had with with people in that um in that environment, and and both policing and military uh, fascinate me how leadership is is developed in those contexts. So let me ask you, describe. A few or one or many challenging experiences which defined 
your leadership. That's part one. And then mm -hmm. compare that to your research findings, if you can, for me, Shane. Mm -hmm. Sure. So picking up on that instance of frontline leadership, which which I, I think arguably, arguably sets policing apart from, from other types of professions, organisations. So an example there was once, uh, I was, this is a few years ago now, I was an operational commander, which meant that you were the most senior ranking officer. I was an inspector, operational commander, and I looked after all the south side area of Brisbane. So paint the scenario, it always happens at one or two o'clock in the morning. You're the senior person, there's no one else around, everyone else of high rank is in bed having a nice little sleep. And uh, I get called to this address at uh, Baranda, uh, a suburb on the, in, um, on the southeast of, of the city, uh, only about stone's throw from the city. And the, the complaint that we had in, in, in summary was the mother of this person who was 21, the mother rang up quite distressed, triple zero call, my, my son just rang me, he's intoxicated, he's had uh, ingested a large, large amount of unknown quantity of drugs. He is, uh, he is bipolar, schizophrenic, he's suffering an episode and he's, he's saying now that he needs to do something drastic to himself, self-harm. I do remember specifically what he was saying he was going to do. He's going to get a carving knife in his, in his ground floor unit and then cut off his testicles. And we took that threat very seriously because of his state. He did have a history of mental illness. He did have a history of drug abuse. He was living in the unit with, with by himself with very little support and his mother was distressed. We went to the address. We cordoned off the, 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 the ground floor uh, unit. We tried to make entry and we couldn't. Tried every window, aperture, whatever. And, and, and all the troops, by that stage, there was probably about four crews, about eight police officers, a couple of dog squad units too on top of that. And they all looked at me and said, well, what are we going to do, boss? And I tell you what... <laughs> You were really put on the spot there. So do I go in? Potentially, he could be in a pool of blood on his bed have, have, and, and be actually bleeding out, bleeding to death. So I had to make this. Do I go in? Or he could be hiding behind the door, waiting for something to come in, and one of my officers gets that. Or do I wait? Do I sit back and wait and wait for the special emergency response team or what's commonly known as SWAT in America but served in Australia? Do I wait for them up to an hour? before they actually would come to the address. So I'm going, I've got to make a decision. The troops want me to make, they're pleading with me to make a decision. I have to make a decision. Their eyes are pleading, just, just what do we do? So I got together three or four of the biggest guys I could see. They were all men at that stage in the, in the police in, in, who attended, there was no female officers. And um, I said, look, um, are you okay to get, if you vest up, are you okay to go in? Are you comfortable with that? And I said, yes. So I did check, you know, I did ask the question. And they had to, uh, what they call a 10-pound key, which is a 10-pound sledgehammer, smash the front door in. And at that stage, I was following them in like a little halfback because I'm not a big guy. <laughs> These big guys were the forwards, literally, in, in, in policing and in um, footballing parlance. Uh, but we walked in and ran into to the room and then we walked, found him in, in the bedroom lying on the bed with the knife in his hand and luckily he hadn't carried through with his threat. So, yeah, my heart's pumping out of my chest thinking, you know, what's going to happen? But they're, they're the sort of things that you walk away and go, you know, what did I, what did I learn out of this? <laughs> and my research indicates that, you know, the troops want you to make a decision. That, that's, that's the main thing. They want to follow you, but you've got to make a decision. You can't forward it to the uh, planning committee. You can't sit around and wait for... Uh, funding committee to to, set, to to form and discuss things, yet you are it. So I would argue that there's not too many other professions where, where frontline leadership comes to the fore like that. Well, so you're telling me you can't call the commissioner at one or two in the morning and ask him? For <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, I, I, I no, think that's I, your call. I think, that, I think those senior fat cats should do more of that uh, <laughs> on the crowd. No, I get it. I get it. Wow. That, that, um, that would leave some, um, some things in your head to be thinking about. Mm. And yeah, I, I would, because you can, I mean, you paint a, a vivid picture of that. You can imagine uh, what would be younger police officers looking mm. at you, not um, almost begging for direction by going, well, you've got to make the call without actually saying it 
to yeah. you and that and that look I think is a universal look even in organizations yes. where you're not in policing right. where people go well what what are we doing Pretty cool <laughs> and yeah particularly when and I think what you're talking about is in crisis situations mm. and I'm, I'm assuming that look is what people will give people that are responding to emergencies like floods and um, seeing the potential, not panic, but um, the adrenaline build up in those around you because they're geared and trained to respond to those situations. And so um, one thing that I think is in the back of their mind is the decision maker needs to give us a call to move forward. And that was you. And you've explained that, that, um, quite well well i'm glad the situation turned out not bad as you're describing but it could have gone a number of different ways i'm sure you lost a few nights sleep over that one (laughs) well the thing about it is and you alluded to it earlier eric about the accountability issue and how high the accountability is and and your decision gets scrutinized uh at length for for days and and perhaps for coronial inquiries months and weeks weeks and months later by many, many learned people who said, well, maybe, Shane, you sort of thought about this. Did you think about that? Um, well, maybe you should have waited. Uh, you, you had all this information. So it, it's really difficult for a leader in that situation because you know you're going to get judged. You know you're going to get scrutinised, but you've got to have the courage. And so what my research indicated, my PhD, was that the major learning experiences, what, what really defined their leadership were things like that, like you alluded to it, floods, fires, sieges, murder investigations, the big complex ones that put them under a lot of pressure. And, and luckily, it was sink or swim, and luckily they swam. And one, one of my interviewees said, I dog paddled, but I got there, <laughs> using the same analogy. Yeah, look, I, 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 would, um, I could not do that kind of job only because, for me, thinking about the what if things had gone different scenario after would plague me because that could have gone all kinds of wrong. Yes. And and that's something that uh, I don't think any leader with any ounce of um, truth in their heart would say that they didn't think about either before, during or after the event. And it, it strikes me um, as uh, uh, worth asking this question. After a moment like that in, in that profession, in the policing profession, do you get any kind of debrief within the service or someone talks to you about what, how are you feeling? Are you okay? Like, is that is that talked about after the event or is it just taken as part of the job and you move on after the incident? Look, I, I think I th- it's a good, very good question for starters because it's all about supporting um, the leaders who are making the hard calls. And I think what tends to happen, and I'm generalising, is that the senior police are considered to be the hardened veterans so at that stage, you know, I was probably late 30s, early 40s, been in the job for 20 years, and they say, well, you know, Doily, my nickname, Doily can handle it. You know, but but that that they would then go to the police, the dog squad guys and those police that were break the door down and they'd say, Are you okay? And I'm going, Hello, I'm a little bit stressed myself. But it's really hard. The culture is that you really have to put it up your hand and say, I'm stressed. But it's still. It's still a bit, yeah. It's 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 a bit iffy because particularly the more senior you get, you sort of it, it comes with the the territory. You're supposed to be resilient because you got to inspector. You know, you should be able to handle this stuff. It's it's the young troops we're worried about, which of course is well placed, but also, as you said, it did did worry me. It did play in my mind that that decision on that particular occasion, and many decisions have. It, it, I I do. I, 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 you wouldn't be human if you didn't worry, occasionally, Eric. Yeah, I, I, I get that. Um, it's just a shame that the, that aspect of the culture is as you become, uh, as you put more time in, you know, time spent in the role that somehow you've built this in impervious shell that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you need to be worried about those under you. And look, it, it's that that's not unique to the police. I've seen it in, in the commercial fisheries uh, talking to um typically blokes that have been fishing for 40 50 years and when stress gets to them and and they're at breaking point it seems to me only other fishermen know what those signals are for when they're not 100 percent. but um, things like are you okay and and other programs are not not necessarily in the fishing industry but in other industries asking a very simple question about people's mental health state 
there and and it's definitely a leadership thing mm. is to say hey how are you going but if the person is asking and they happen to be a leader they sometimes want that question asked as well because maybe they're not 100 percent, and that doesn't mean at breaking point i'm just saying maybe you five seconds to detox might be enough to get it out of your system. Um, yeah. But you need another person to ask that, but we'll, we'll, we, we could get down the rabbit hole with some of this stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, enjoying, yeah. I'm enjoying this conversation, yeah. mate. So um, last, can I just, sorry, sorry, Eric, right, no, right. Right. sorry, interrupting. Can I just say, I think it's improved. The are you okay is wonderful. You know, I, I ran the mental health intervention pro- project for three or four years uh, and I'm, and I think it's it has improved in the police. Don't get me wrong, but this I'm I'm going back, you know, perhaps a decade now. So things things are better, but there's still a culture there, because um, I still talk to a current serving police, and there's still a culture about putting your hand up, like particularly at senior levels. It's still you, you can email them and ring them and say, "Are you okay?" But will the officer will the officer actually own up because of this expectation that you know you're a big tough inspector or senior officer? Yeah. Yeah, not not great, but that that'll change over time, and it ta- yeah. and it takes time. I, I I'm not um I'm not a big believer in just because you've got a new intervention that suddenly it's going to work and change a culture that's been there for right. as long as policing has been there. So that that I get that. Um, Shane, finally, tell us about your experiences, both positive and uh, negative, in terms of role models in mm. the police context and then can you compare that to what you did in your research yeah it's it it, role models have always been a very important part of my leadership journey they've they've helped me along the way many many times i've gravitated towards certain people people who had qualities that i admired and and they inspired me i mentioned that alluded to that previously so i i think they 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 also provide you opportunities Uh, when i was um, an inspector I was in charge of a, a training unit in headquarters. Um, had over a thousand uh, police uh, and and civilians that I was looking after, managing their education and training needs. So it was a big. Had a multi million dollar budget, so it was a big responsibility. But on top of that, I got a phone call out of the blue from a high ranking officer and said, "Oh, Shane, um, would you were starting up this mental health intervention project, which I previously mentioned before?" And I and I said, "Oh, what's it about?" And he said, "We want you to lead it up." And I said, "Oh, that's." That's that's wonderful, you know. What what I would get? Do I get an office? You know, all this sort of stuff. And he said, "No, you, you'll be staying where you are." He said, "What what doing the business as usual?" And and on top of that, doing this project. He said, "Yeah, yeah." And you know, for a split second, I almost said no. <laughs> and it was a golden opportunity. And that's the thing is that these these defining moments in your career, your leisure career, when you're given that opportunity, and was by a mentor who saw in me something that. He, I, I could do this job and get developed from it and become a better leader. And I said, and after about two, he said, I don't think about it for too long. I said, okay, I'll do it because I didn't want to miss the opportunity. And it was one of the, a great project management experience, great for my leadership. So I, I just don't want to, I really want to emphasize how important it is to, to, to seize those opportunities when they come along, because they may not come along again, Eric, that's the thing. Um, so what, I find interesting about role models is that I learned so much about them, but also learned so much about the negative role models, the ones that I thought were duds. Well, in terms of not duds overall, but there are certain things they did were, were not perhaps the best. So I'll give you an example. I, when I was in an operational role, I, you make you make hundreds hundreds of decisions on a shift, hundreds, and, and yeah, occasionally you're going to stuff up occasionally you don't don't but the, the thing about it is you make the decisions back to my previous point so uh this particular uh, manager let's say unnamed manager he uh took great delight in calling me over to his office and uh never told me what it was about but i knew i was getting in trouble because it was only ever i only went to his office when i was in trouble <laughs> so i went over there and he said oh shane i'm gonna to have to talk to you about that decision you made last night with the, with the chopper I said, oh, with the missing person? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, mate, uh, that was a bad call. I said, oh, okay. Well, thanks for the feedback. I said, why was it a bad call? And he went out the reasons. And I said, I respectfully disagree. And he looked at me and said, said, you can't do that. I'm, I'm high rank, high ranking. You know, I said, well, I just said it. And I said, uh, and by that stage, the third time, I think in a week, he called me to the office and, and sort of railroad tracks over me, give him a big, good yeah, you know, that negative feedback, really good for you, isn't it, Eric? That negative feedback. 
So I said, uh, it's his third time this week and I'm just about getting sick of it. And um, I said, if next time I come over here, I expect to be congratulated on one of my good decisions. And he just said, leave the office. He didn't say those exact words because I can't repeat them what he said, but he leave the office. So what I learned from that experience was, geez, how important is positive feedback? How important it is to tell the truth, to doing the damn right thing, not get up and, and catch them doing the wrong thing, catch them the right thing. So an example, quick one, I just made it a mission that I was going to find good things with people and, and, and tell them, email them, phone them up, whatever. And I remember this one, one particular uh, communications officer, she, she worked in the communication, she made this fantastic call on a, on a dangerous drive. There was police pursuit. She was calm. She was controlled. She made the right call. She told them to terminate, abandon the, the pursuit. Everything was perfect. I was, I was wrapped. I was listening to the radio. And I said, I'm going to give her an email. So I've, I've gone back to the station and I spent 10 minutes tapping out an email. You know, oh, this is great. That was great. Anyway, I just happened five years later to run into that officer. And she said, no. And I introduced you. I, I still remember you. I, I know you. And I said, do you? Because you don't. So many people do, but I never, never met her. And she said, yeah, no, you gave me that email five years ago and you gave me a big rap. I said, really? And she, and she said, I've used that email parts of it to get jobs and get promoted. Thank you very much. It wasn't just that. It was the fact that she said I was really chuffed and I, I, was, I dined out on that email, told, showed it to my partner. Like, it took me five minutes, Eric. To, and and what, what sort of impact did, she, did, did that have on her life and her career? And I, I never got it. I never got how important the impact could be. So the upshot of that was that out of my research, the PhD research, that was a really interesting uh, side issue that came out of it, but I didn't expect it. And there's not a lot, of, a lot of research about it. The officers repeatedly told me that they learnt more about how not to be a leader from the bad role models, the bad supervisors, the bad bosses. And they'd say, look, I'm never going to do that. One person said, you know, they was castigated in front of the troops. So they, they called them out in the mirror room and said, yeah, you stuffed up, you did this. I said, I'll never do that. So it was really interesting how I, I call them negative wizards. And it's like it's almost reverse role modelling where people actually learn leadership at, by watching and observing bad leaders and saying, I'll never do that. Yeah, it's um, this, this particular topic, what you've just discussed there has come up more than once in my conversations and it's about um, you remember the good ones and you really remember the bad ones and and I'm talking about good leadership versus bad leadership practice and mm-hmm. although um, the bad ones for me given how I'm hired wide and this I'm not saying this is the same for everyone the bad ones are always top of mind because I, I want to do things completely different to them and I've, I've had some some shit house bosses in a career like we've all had, but the good ones are really good ones stick in your mind because someone's mm. picked something out of your practice that you've gone, yeah, that's, you know, you've been given praise or whatever the situation was. And yeah, a couple of minutes of, of bad feedback can destroy someone's confidence for no good reason other than you think it's your job uh, to give negative feedback to mm. keep people on their toes. And i I would argue, and I think I think I would be happy to do the research on this. That I think people become more productive and are better at their jobs when they get constructive feedback rather than "you did this wrong." Versus, if we had this to do again, how could we improve on your practice? That's a different conversation than saying you stuff something up. You know, <laughs> it's, it's all in the delivery. It is. It is. Yeah. I, I, I don't I, I don't have a doubt. Let, before we go, just let me clarify sure. something with you. You use role model. Did you mean that in as a um, as a substitute for mentor or something different to mentoring? It, it is the subtle difference between in in my my research, a subtle difference between role model and mentor because a role model is someone that that may not take on a mentoring role. So you see them from afar, you, and then maybe some of these role models are sometimes uh, unapproachable because of their rank or their, their level in the organisation, but you like the way that they, they deal with people. You've seen them from afar. So th- that's, that's, that's the d- distinguishing between a, a role model and a, 
um, that, that's a difference. But a role model, can, they can be the same thing, Eric. I'm not, I'm not trying to say they're separate categories. But but sometimes the role model is not always your mentor. That's the, I suppose that's what, it, what I want to say. Yeah, no, no, and I'm not I'm not for one second wanting you to create new categories here. No, no, it, no. It just just to, and I don't want to confuse anyone potentially watching or listening. I've I've been I have a fascination with leaders as uh, leaders as teachers, leaders as coaches, leaders as mentors, leaders as role models, and what mix of those are you? And I think I think particularly there it's very different depending on the industry that you're in. So some leaders are very much focused on being a coach because that's all they need to do versus being a mentor, which is something different again. And there are some subtle differences. And I I like the fact that you brought up role modeling because I'd never given that much consideration, but yeah, I can recall in, in in my career where I've seen some people and how they've, model their behavior and I, I there were some standout human beings and how they manage their work how they manage their senior people so how how they led upwards and managed upwards and managed downwards and um a lot of these people they still um their names and their faces stick in my mind because they like if i was going to be the consummate professional here's my template um for what that looked like and i i was lucky in my early career in the public service in canberra there was one or two, well, probably two, one one gentleman and one lady who stood out to me immediately as if I'm going to be any kind of leader of people, these are the traits that I want to have in me. And right. it, yeah. it it took a while. I still, I still have some niggling things I've got to work on, uh, like uh, um, rushing to judgment sometimes is a, is a problem mm. with me. But, it, you know, if anyone in this leadership game says that they don't have a foible or two, <laughs> that they're not working on it. I don't think they're fed income. That that's just a personal view. Exactly. I, I have no research to to back me up on that. <laughs> Shane, this was a uh, excellent discussion, and I, I think we could go down um, the rabbit hole with any one of these topic areas. And if if we could, I'd love to talk to you again on the leadership topic if you're up for it. Yeah, sure. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity, Eric. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. And of course, a big thanks to Shane for sharing his perspectives around his leadership pathway in the context of his time in the police service as well as academia. If you like the content, please drop a like or if you can, please subscribe to the channel. Have a safe week, look after yourselves and we'll catch everyone on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.